suicide is the one cause of death that is more common among physicians than non-physicians. It could be considered an occupational hazard for physicians. It's a problem that needs to be discussed and needs to be addressed. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with the authors of a practice article on physician suicide, published in CMAJ. Dr. Joy Albuquerque is a psychiatrist in Toronto and a medical director of the Ontario Medical Association's Physician Health Program. Dr. Sarah Tulk is a family physician in Milton, Ontario, and on faculty in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. Welcome, Sarah and Joy. Hi. I'm going to begin by asking each of you to tell us a bit about yourself and about your involvement in physician health. Sarah, go ahead. Thanks, Kirsten. So for me, uh, the involvement in physician health was actually personal. Um, I had a depressive episode during my residency training. And through that and through just talking about it a little bit, I came to realize that mental health conditions were actually very common amongst my peers and amongst other physicians. Um, We just don't realize it because no one's talking about it. For me, realizing that I wasn't the only physician with these struggles, it really made my recovery so much easier. So as I started out in my career as staff physician, I really wanted to help open people's eyes to the fact that um, they're really not alone in these struggles and um, that this is a common issue that uh, we really need to work on uh, supporting each other through. Joy. I'm a psychiatrist and you know I've been working for a lot of years in psychiatry and for about 15 years in physician health. And so I've had conversations with doctors struggling with suicidal thoughts um, and how challenging it is. But when I think about, you know, how I even got into this, it's a loss of somebody to suicide. And that's been that story that stays with me for um, many years now as a resident, having a patient, not a doctor, die by suicide and having the impact on me, um, the impact on the team. So it's um, my pleasure to be here. And both Sarah and I wanted to thank uh, CMAJ um, for both publishing and also for this this podcast. Joy, what do we know about the rate of suicide among physicians in Canada? Well, that's a great question, (laughs) Kristen. We don't know very much about the rates in Canada. Uh, Sadly, there's not much published data. Uh, Most of it comes from the U.S., in terms of um, uh, statistics, and there's been some good meta-analyses that have been done on physician in general. So most of us in the in this work would um, agree that Canadians are probably represented well by that data, and that data is um, really alarming. Both men and women um, in in medicine rates of suicide are higher than the general population, and uh, women are three times higher tend to be younger, um, dying by suicide, and uh, men are higher than the the general population, almost double. So those are the rates that we have. Um, Sarah, you were going to chat a little bit about the CMA survey. Maybe I'll turn it to you. Yes. So, Joy, that's the CMA National Physicians Health Survey. They weren't able to look at suicide itself, but they were able to look at suicidal ideation. Um, And the numbers are actually um, quite striking. Overall, uh, physicians surveyed recorded a lifetime rate of suicidal ideation of 19%, with uh, 8% suffering from uh, SI in the past year. 
one thing that I found particularly striking was looking at the uh, data amongst medical learners. So residents reported a lifetime rate of a suicidal ideation at 27%, with uh, 15% reporting in the past year. Um, that's actually double the rate of staff physicians. Interesting residents screening positive for depression was 48%. They didn't find any difference between specialty or practice setting. This is a problem amongst residents globally. So when we look at 15% of residents screening positive for SI in the past year, 50% almost screening positive for depression, um, I think that's really tragic. You know, if 50% of our learners were screening positive for diabetes or some sort of malignancy, I think we'd all be asking ourselves, like, what's going on here? Um, we'd be looking at our training environments to see what's happening to impart this risk. But because it's mental health, it seems that that doesn't happen. And uh, I really think that needs to change. Um, these students, I mean, like, they're the future of our profession. I think we need to do better to set them up for success. Medical students in particular, they're in such a vulnerable place. Um, I teach at uh, the undergrad level, and my students are worried that any little thing they do or say will influence their CARMS match. You know, they're afraid to see counselors. They're afraid to go to their family doctors for mental health concerns because they're worried it might jeopardize their match. And I think that's just so sad. Our profession imparts increased risk for dying by suicide and then places obstacles between uh, them uh, and treatment. Um, but I think it's also uh, kind of amazing the potential we have with learners because they really present a unique opportunity to create cultural change. If we can promote good self-care and normalize receiving mental health care um, right from the start, we can make a huge dent in this issue of stigma. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Sarah. I think there are a lot of uh, important pieces that uh, need to happen, especially early on. I mean, we know that medical students come in for the right reasons, smart, young, empathetic, uh, wanting to, to do right by patients. And we see their empathy scores decrease as uh, training goes by. Some of that you kind of um, expect will happen to some degree because they must be able to have some stress tolerance so that they can be there with patients who are suffering. Um, but some of it is actually quite painful and it's modeled perhaps by um, uh, those of us who are into our careers. Um, it's a culture in medicine or some cultural aspects of medicine that, um, you know, which is about not talking about oneself, not talking about the problems, not talking about mistakes that we're not supposed to or that it's just not done. And therefore, the idea that you, you keep everything inside you and therefore, if you are struggling, well, it just is not normal to do that. And what a paradox we find ourselves in that the people who train to care for other people are the very people who don't think they're worthy or feel like they can't actually reach out for care themselves. One thing that I want to draw out at this stage, the article that you've written is about physician suicide. And what you're talking about here in this conversation with me is how physicians struggle. And it always strikes me that a suicide, any suicide, is a shock and it wakes people up to an underlayer of um, discomfort and mental distress. But we never really think about that underlayer and treat that underlayer. We talk about only the shocking part, which is the suicide. And uh, Sarah, you were talking about being open about your own struggles, and uh, Joy, you were talking about modeling. And then you said that there needs to be a culture change. What sort of culture change are we looking at? 
Yeah, you know, you're talking about uh, the importance of driving change and um, part of me wants to answer that with like something tangible. But actually, I think that with this issue, um, talking about it really is driving change. Um, one of the biggest barriers to physicians receiving mental health is the stigma surrounding it. And just by talking about it, we really can uh, help break that down. I think the more physicians who come out of the woodworks with their stories and the more we hear about treatment successes, the more we give physicians permission to seek um, and receive mental health care. I think we really need to work towards this culture where it's safe for physicians to access care because we can put all the supports and services in the world in place. But if um, doctors are too afraid of repercussions to access them, then it's not going to do any good. Michael Myers, who's done some really incredible work in this area, did a survey of family survivors of physician suicide, and he actually found that up to 15% of those who were lost to suicide never saw a treatment provider before their death. I think that's really just quite tragic. Um, you know, I think it's really sad that as a profession, we could let our colleagues reach a terminal stage of an illness without them ever seeing a treatment provider, not even like not even one time. I really think we need to do better. Yeah, Sarah. I mean, we're talking about physicians, but it's also some other uh, health professionals who also have an increase in, in risk of uh, dying by suicide as well. Um, because um, in part, our, um, what, I, what I've talked about being the language of suffering um, has been allowed to be sort of in the kingdom of being a patient and not in, you know, the idea of being a professional. You know, we're not supposed to think of ourselves in that in that way and that's been a long long standing um, self-sacrifice giving oneself to the profession I, I'm a third generation physician and my father and grandfather didn't have a way to talk about you know the challenges that they might have felt they didn't put it into words um, uh, we started to in our generation but I think it's Sarah and the next generations who are in some ways teaching us that this is important to have these conversations. It's important to be there uh, for one another. And if we do, we'll actually be better at working together, better at being there for our patients. And then the other sort of more broad system is that suicide and and suicidal ideation is, um, of course, seen in some of the more typical conditions like severe major depression or other mood disorders or PTSD or um, uh, some of the post-trauma kinds of circumstances that doctors find themselves in. But it is also in burnout and in other stress-related moments and incidents and events that a doctor can go through that aren't actually associated with a um, a diagnosis in the sort of more traditional DSM sense, and that is interesting. So you have you have people generally who are employed, generally who are married, and generally who have um, a fair degree of socioeconomic support, and they are um, with suicidal ideation as a result of um, distress or an adverse event. We have to elevate this so that people know that this can happen to to any one of us. And I, you know, I I often am talking to somebody who has reached a leadership level and they will disclose how somebody died by suicide. And um, it was sort of on their watch, so to speak. And it has led to them saying, you know, never again. Um, And 
you know, I'm thinking about the emergency doctor who sees a, a physician and feels like they're doing the physician a favor by assessing them and discharging them um, when they're sent in because of or go in because they're they're distressed. So sometimes I think for the, the wrong reasons, people end up discharging and not asking the questions about suicidal ideation. Um, you know, we, we want to do right by our, our, our patients, but there have been physicians who have died by suicide leaving the emergency room. And so I think it's a really painful example um, that leads again to change um, because we need to be better at being able to be ask those questions uh, and because people usually say when I'm talking to them that nobody's asked them if they're suicidal. Um, it's almost like we're not supposed to ask, uh, ask one of us if we might have those thoughts because we're not supposed to have them. And so I think it's a really important piece, um, as Sarah was saying, is that we need to have a safe place to tell these stories because we need people to know that they're not alone and that there is a way through. Joy, I want to pick up on something. Earlier, you were talking about sometimes suicidal ideation and suicide are associated with uh, mental disorders, diagnosed mental conditions. But I think that the research on suicide shows that not every suicide is preceded by a diagnosis of a mental condition and that there are other factors that contribute to suicide. Now, I remember when I was a, a medical student, I was a depressed medical student and as a junior doctor, I was depressed and suicidal and also wasn't aware that depression was something that I would feel. It was a diagnosis that I had learned about at medical school that other people in psych hospitals had, but it wasn't what I had. And I remember the extreme tiredness of long hours of working and feeling ashamed of not doing right by my patients or feeling sad about losing a patient that that sort of just tipped me over the edge to a feeling of I cannot carry on anymore and I I wonder about talking about those things in your article where you talk about the high rate of suicide when we get to why there's a high rate of suicide among doctors than in the community in general. Is it burnout? Is it overwork? Is it a cultural thing? What are the biggest components? Thank you for sharing, Kristen. It's very much, um, we see the same CMA survey that, that Sarah mentioned earlier also shows that the higher rates of, of depression, at least by screening, um, are there within our program. Uh, whether those are actually clinical depression or whether they are, you know, sort of more of an adjustment or sort of minor depression, we don't really have a DSM for situational issues that are occurring over time. But what we're finding is, and especially in the younger residents and medical students who are more likely to get help, actually, which is um, heartening, really, that they're being treated for that, whether or not it's depression or not, they're being treated psychotherapy, sometimes with medications, um, and they're saying, wow, I cannot believe the difference. I cannot believe how I felt I thought was the norm, kind of what you were talking about. You know, it's difficult when you're the, the frog in that water getting hotter and hotter to know whether or not that is, um, you know, actually getting hotter or if that's, um, if that's actually a problem that I have. So I think it's really when we're there and somebody sees us um, shifting from our baseline, because usually somebody around has noticed something. They just haven't necessarily thought it was um, as 
serious as what's going on inside the individual because we hide a lot and we feel kind of better at work. So uh, people might not notice. But if somebody notices a shift, that's where I really love that message to get out. You know, ask somebody, are they okay? You know, um, and then be be there to get them to that next right step, which um, could be um, their family doctor. It could be all the way as an emergency to the emergency room. Joy, I thought you mentioned a really good point there about how hard it can be to be both a healthcare provider and a healthcare consumer. We're so used to being on the doctor side of that doctor-patient relationship that to step into that other role, even if it was for something organic, is uncomfortable. We're doctors. We don't like being patients. We don't make good patients. And then when you add that intense stigmatization that's stuck to mental health care, it can really become an impenetrable barrier. I know for me, you know, I have a fantastic psychiatrist I can't speak highly enough of, but I don't like using the front door to his clinic. It seems awkward. I, I'm used to using the back door. <laughs> um, I don't like sitting in the other chair. You know, I'm used to being at the computer. It's very mm. strange. It's very unnerving. And I think when you take someone who's already in a particularly vulnerable state and now you're asking them to sit you know, in the opposite chair to take that opposite role. Um, for some people, the answer is just, no, I can't. I can't do that. And I think that that's also a good place where our colleagues can come in in uh, supporting one another. What do we know about the means of suicide among physicians? Yeah, so if you look at the literature, depending on the study, the most common method is firearms or poisoning, with the most common medications being um, barbiturates in most studies, but also benzodiazepines and uh, antipsychotics. There was uh, another study that showed that blunt force trauma and asphyxia, which included hanging, were also more common in physicians than uh, in uh, non-physicians. But it was that self-poisoning that's most common. In, in my experience, um, the doctors tend to use medications, but they use medications in a way that they know will have that impact. People need to know both facts. Uh, they need to understand the seriousness because um, we know how to do it. You know, we have the means, we have the prescription pads, and we know how to do it um, and do it effectively. We can be pretty scary, I think, when we, we turn our minds to that. Um, we don't know what the, the stats are for doctors with substance use uh, disorders because some become um, such high risk of dying by suicide, but also such high risk of overdosing and dying, like in the opioid crisis that people know about today. We've known about the opioid crisis in medicine uh, for a long, long time. There are, are too many doctors who die because they've uh, they adjusted their dose wrongly and are found with um, the um, IV in their arm. So the idea of using medications, but also using multiple um, modes as well. So it's not infrequent that a doctor will try actually using a few modes to ensure that they are going to die. They don't want to be found and they certainly don't want if they are, to have any injuries or impact on somebody else, if there's any morbidity. In your article, you also mentioned that the rate of suicide is higher among physicians who have either a past or current regulatory complaint against them. 
Can you tell us what you think that means? Yeah, so anecdotally, I think we we all know how stressful receiving a complaint and working through that process can be. Um, But a reviewer actually pointed out this excellent study from the UK that quantified that risk. It's really quite striking. So physicians without complaints reported SI at a rate of 2.5%, but those with a current or recent complaint actually had rates of uh, suicidal ideation almost four times higher than the baseline. And if you looked at anyone who had ever had a complaint, uh, that increase was over fivefold. And I I think there's um, CMPA had done uh, a study some time ago few years ago, looking at um, stressors and the impact on on physicians. And there was no question that uh, the highest stressor was a patient complaint or a CPSO regulatory process. And what we, we know is that in the last, over the last decade, with lots of pressures, there has been increased demand for transparency about a lot of things. And that has led to changes in the questions that are asked on our applications for licensure and our reapplications, um, asking for more details about health. So not only do complaints and the complaint process, which, as Sarah mentioned, is incredibly stressful um, for us. I mean, the chance that you may have sanctions or your fear that you um, in some way may lose your livelihood or your job or that people will treat you in a different way. There's that part. And then on top of that, we're being asked more information. And that has been um, um, over and over again shown to if anything, to make people less likely to get help. And there's this wonderful study that was done looking at a Facebook group where uh, female Mm -hmm. physicians and moms who have um, in strong uh, populated this Facebook site and are uh, really using it. And they did this study um, on that, looking at that group. And they said just an overwhelming uh, number of them said that they would not seek help when they were feeling not okay because it wasn't safe to do so, uh, that it would lead to some negative consequence. And to me, that's both shocking but very alarming, uh, especially when we start to see how closely burnout and stress is tied to suicidal ideation. Physicians who have suicidal ideation face unique barriers to care. What are those barriers? Yeah, and um, you know it's interesting. I think they the barriers, and I'd love to see them turn into hurdles, and have them be hurdles that get smaller, um, so that we're getting past them. But you're you're right. There are there are barriers that come from um, people being afraid, afraid that there is no treatment, afraid that there isn't help, afraid that the there would be a negative impact to them, afraid that they will lose their job. Um, this is now a time where in some areas in medicine, it's more difficult to actually compete to get jobs, particularly if they're you know, needing a, an operating room or operating time. And if somebody has a health condition that might be seen to be perhaps increasing a risk to them in some way, are they going to be as competitive? And so there are a lot of fears when you have health concerns, but then we're also concerned about how people might judge us, you know, how how we might be looked at as weak, a weak link or not part of the, the profession in terms of feeling weak uh, and judged as that. I think there's a lot of concerns about that. 
people fear about their confidentiality, that health information is just going to get broadly, you know, almost broadcasted around and everybody will know. Uh, people worry about it being on the website, especially in the CPSO. So there's all these fears that are happening, and some of them are realistic. I mean, there are major challenges with um, how we're regulated and the fact that we are a safety-sensitive occupation um, and that we do work and have our jobs because the public trusts us. So there's a lot that we understand and, and ha- but that we do need to be accountable um, but at the same time, we don't want doctors to feel like they can't get their health needs met. Um, and there is still a stigma and discrimination, you know, about mental illness that um, perhaps we as doctors have for ourselves. Um, I know that some very prominent doctors have talked about self-stigmatizing themselves as they have health health concerns. Um, and But then... Maybe we carry some implicit biases about this that um, impact how we relate to somebody who might have a health condition or how we interact with somebody. And I think those are those important cultural pieces, again, that we need to address. You know, we all have biases. We all have assumptions. um, And we, we need to still sort of have them, but also be willing to be there for somebody. Yeah, if we um, go back to the CMA uh, National Physician Health Survey, their top reported barriers to seeking help, uh, number one was believing that the situation was not severe enough, and number two was feeling ashamed to seek help, Um, and I think that that's something you uh, really hit on the nail there, uh, Joy. I mean, if we were to think, like, I mean, if you or I or anyone were feeling suicidal and needing help for that, you know, let's just go through the barriers that would be in place. First, you need to realize that, which can be hard as some mental illnesses rob you of your insight and can create this tunnel vision where suicide seems like the only solution. Um, But if you were able to get past that, and now presumably we're talking about voluntary treatment, you'd have to have at least some degree to want to be treated, which might be hard when throughout your career, your profession has told you that you shouldn't need to depend on others for help. Um, You should be strong. You know, you should be the ultimate stoic. Um, Doctors help others. They don't take help from others. You know, then you'd have to find a provider. What if you're in a small town? Like I think about our rural colleagues, you know, you worry about judgment. You might worry about confidentiality. Um, where do you go when you're one of the only providers? It's uh, it's hard. It's hard to access healthcare as a physician. It's hard to get over the shame. Um, and it's hard to get past the stigma, both from colleagues and also, as, as you mentioned, Joy, from, from yourself. It's really important to have conversations like this conversation we're having here today, but it's just as important to drive change. So what do you think needs to be done to address physician suicide in the next few years? Hmm. This is larger than every one of us, and yet every one of us will likely either be touched in some way um, or experience their own personal distress or need to act. But on the large issue, I think, um, you know, CMA has got a great policy on, on physician health. Um, each province across the, our, our nation has a physician health programs. Um, you know, we need to make sure that all doctors have family doctors. And I think now all of the medical schools across um, our nation have uh, wellness programs and are looking at not only for the undergrad and postgrad, but thinking about fellows 
as well as for the staff um, who are, you know, w- working within the system. And then that leaves the community docs and the community docs in hospitals and then the rural and the remote. So how do we ensure that these messages get across that this profession actually cares about and it matters to them that uh, that every single person has um, equitable a- access and equitable workplaces. You know, I think those are the the larger discussions that are starting to, to happen now with the Royal College, who is um, looking at the CanMeds and the, how to have competency-based uh, medicine. What does it look like to be a professional currently now, not just how it was in my dad's day, but, you know, what does it look like now and to the future? So I think there's a larger issue that um, is going to drive change. But maybe, Sarah, I'll turn it to you to talk a little bit more from your perspective. Yeah, so you asked about what needs to change. So I think about what do we need in order for people to access care. And so, number one, we need the services. And number two, we need people to feel safe using them. So I think you make a really good point about every physician needing a family doctor. I think as a family doctor myself, I might add that it's helpful if family doctors and other physicians have some education on how to treat physician patients because there are some nuances that are a bit different. It can be a bit of a different dynamic than a patient who is not also a colleague. I think, you know, looking at services through physician health programs, I think, you know, medical schools are adding in wellness programs and counseling, which I think is fantastic. Um, I think one part of accessing services is also looking at a time factor, um, which is particularly an issue for medical learners. They have almost no control over their schedule. To make it to see a counselor who's only working nine to five, I mean, that can be um, that can be almost impossible. Um, un- unpredictability of call schedules can make it hard to make appointments. So we also need to look at that access perspective. And then people need to feel safe. And I think we've talked a lot about safety and stigma. You know, you have to know that you can access care and you can feel comfortable that this will, you know, stay confidential. If, you know, you do share, you have to feel confident that, you know, you're not going to see your referrals suddenly drop off or you're having like, you know, harder cases not coming to you. You're not going to have troubles with privileging applications. You're not going to have trouble with faculty appointments or teaching positions. You need to know that nothing is going to change except perhaps support from the workplace if that's something that you want and would be helpful. Um, But you have to feel protected from negative consequences as a result of seeking care. Sarah, I like that you outlined the real practical things because I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And I I hear a lot of um, residents saying, you know, my hospital's got resilience training and it's mandatory and it's more stressful to go to resilience training. And then they feel like they've ticked the the physician wellness box Uh, or my hospital has a physician wellness program, but I don't feel that there's anything different. We're just told to be mindful. That's a really good point, Kristen. I've heard that said as well. I think resilience programs, while the intention may be good, kind of miss the mark. If we look at, you know, the definition of resilience, you know, you need to have a stressor, a fall from baseline function, and then a return to baseline function. 
resilience. Residents are resilient. Um, at some point, we have to look at the environment. What are we asking them to come back from? And how can they come back when the stressor is never removed? Yeah, that's really powerful. I think that an element of resilience has happened already before we get to that point, right? And so saying, oh, be more resilient when you've already exhausted your resources of resilience is kind of counterproductive. I feel pretty strongly that um, this isn't about resilience. And um, in fact, that CMA Health survey talked about or made measures of, you know, well-being and how how we're flourishing and how our, we feel our health is actually. Our well-being is pretty good. So here we have resilience, well-being, flourishing, being sort of high levels in medicine, and yet burnout is high and suicidal ideation and depression scores. So I think there's something really interesting here. We've got people who are actually really good at stress. Uh, really good at managing stress, who are t- who tend to be um, more more resilient in general. Um, this is something different. You know, the world we work in is different. How we practice medicine is different. The demands on us, the multitasking, the the EMRs, all kinds of things that are happening that are distancing us from our patients and and changing how we work are some of the stressors that people are talking about in, that are really eroding us. You know, that whole idea of getting burned out because it's just it's sort of this uphill battle of, of trying to, to work in the way we want to work and yet we can't or it takes us much longer. Um, so, you know, I think there's a, the message that we somehow have to build resilience. Sure. I think on some level as a psychiatrist, I believe we need to learn coping mechanisms. But in general, I think we're pretty darn good. So there's more to this than that. And I hear that too, that medical students and and residents are sort of saying, if somebody mentions, you know, burnout or resilience one more time, I'm going to scream. You know, those kinds of things are happening at the same time that leadership is actually listening and starting to make changes sort of from the top down, which also needs to happen. So we have uh, hospitals like in Ottawa, where right from the CEO down, there's an um, adopted concept that wellness and um, health of staff matters at a corporate level. And what happens when that starts to take place in a, in a university where a dean says, our strategy builds in a physician wellness, trainee wellness, resident wellness into the fabric of, of the strategy? And I think those are the other things that are happening and need to happen. It can't just be you know a mindfulness class and God forbid if it's at 8.30 in the morning. That doesn't make sense. So our last question today, for anyone listening who's struggling, having suicidal thoughts, or for people who know somebody who really needs some help, what advice would you have? Um, Kirsten, so that's that's such a hard question for me to answer. Um, it's difficult because I've been there. I remember quite vividly um, how incredibly isolating and painful it is to harbor suicidal thoughts. Um, I think that what I would say is that even though it really, really feels like it, you're not alone. You're not the only one who's had these struggles. Other physicians have been where you are. They've come through the other side. And, you know, not to sound trite, but, you know, you can do it too. I'd encourage you to remember that 
you know, this doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you less than. It doesn't mean you're not cut out for medicine. It just means that you're human and maybe you're a little bit sick and maybe you need a little bit of help right now. I'd want you to remember that suicidal ideation is a symptom. It isn't you. Uh, it isn't even necessarily a thought you you want. But it's a very serious symptom. If unaddressed, it can be fatal. So I really, really encourage you to please, please don't ignore it. Tell someone, tell, tell, you know, really anyone you think might be able to help you get the help you need. I bet you'd be surprised by how many people want to help. You know, you could consider calling your PHP. You can talk to your family doctor if you have access to one. You could talk to a colleague if there is someone you trust. Just tell someone. And then if you're that someone, I would say to take suicidal ideation in a physician very, very seriously. Um, we've talked before about how physicians have the means and the knowledge for highly lethal suicide attempts. So prevention of that attempt is really, really key. So take it seriously um, and help them get help. They're struggling with enough right now. And if you know you can be the link between them and care, um, you would be doing them a immeasurable good service. Thank you, Sarah. So I, I really, I, I think I just need to emphasize what Sarah said. You know, you're not alone and that uh, you really deserve the chance for care. And um, I know that uh, as colleagues that uh, we want to be there and we want to be able to help. For those of you who are worried about a friend or a, f a family member or a colleague, please don't stay alone with this. Um, as Sarah said, you know, that we're, there are lots of uh, routes to be able to help. And at the same time, that we're always resolved towards perhaps that zero rate of suicide, which um, I, I hope is possible. And for us to be there, uh, to work together, but to be there together, to not to judge um, and to support somebody back to a, a healthier place. Thank you both for taking the time to speak to me today. I'm so grateful that we've had this good conversation about this difficult topic. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much, Kristen. We really appreciate the chance to expand on our uh, Five Things article, which is a great snapshot, but um, there's so much more to be said. So I know we really, really appreciate the chance to come on this podcast and get to explore this topic further. I've been speaking with Dr. Joy Albuquerque, a psychiatrist in Toronto and medical director of the Ontario Medical Association's Physician Health Program, and Dr. Sarah Tolk, a family physician in Milton, Ontario. To read the practice article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>